Our Untangled Minds is for informational purposes only, and it does not constitute professional, medical, or psychological advice, diagnoses, and or treatment. Please make sure that if you do have questions or concerns that are medical or psychological in nature, that you seek out your physician or qualified mental health provider for future help. Furthermore, the information, viewpoints, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the views of individuals that are involved. They do not represent absolute fact and are subject to change at any point in time. CUSM does not accept responsibility for these views. Lastly, the names and details of any medical stories shared in this episode have been edited for privacy. To our excellent listening audience, today we've got a special treat for you. I have here, across from me, Dr. Fabio Macciardi, a geneticist, a psychiatrist, and now an archaeologist, who was among the team responsible for processing the first genomes from the city of Pompeii. Today, I would really like to thank you, Dr. Macciardi, for coming on to our Untangled Minds. Dr. Macciardi is a professor here at the California University of Science and Medicine. And Dr. Macciardi, I think it'd be worthwhile to start out with your background and what drew you to becoming, you know, this admittedly unusual combination of a molecular psychiatrist. Well, Peter, first of all, thanks very much for this kind of nice introduction and thank you very much for having me here. I'm pretty thrilled. Um, well, my, uh, my, uh, <laughs> my pathway is to become a molecular psychiatrist, uh, whatever does it mean, because nobody is very aware or clear what is the real meaning of molecular psychiatry is a long, long journey that began uh, many, many years ago, given that I'm unfortunately getting old. And then I uh, was uh, driven by interest, uh, by my interest uh, on uh, trying to understand uh, what are the mechanisms by which uh, we have uh, our cognitive traits, right? By cognitive trait, I mean something like is typically human, as far as we know, like uh, talking, like uh, using uh, symbolic uh, um, methods or symbolic uh, traits uh, to express a behavior and the likes. And uh, when it was... Uh, my time just to make a choice on what I would have liked to do after high school. There were no old opportunities that are today. And then uh, I was uh, curious and interested about the biological mechanism controlling for the mind. And I, I realized that I had to do a very long uh, pathway through. So I, I went into medicine and then uh, psychiatry because that were my major interest at the time. Could have been neurology or psychiatry, but it ended up being psychiatry. And then I have also maintained my curiosity and interest uh, on uh, the basic biological mechanism that I saw um, best explained by genetics. And this is, this is the background of the beginning. As well, like, what did, I mean, as I said, you were, you are a major part of the research on, you know, the demographics of the ancient Mediterranean, and you managed to work on extracting the first genome from a skeleton left in the ruins of Pompeii. How did you end up taking this interest in genetics and linking it to anthropology and ancient history? Well, that for two different reasons. I mean, one is very personal in the sense that I have always been fascinated by the origin of man and the origin of mankind. And I always wanted to do, to learn more. So that is a curiosity that is always, uh, uh, was, has always been with me. Second one uh, is more practical. And if I can try to explain it, what does it mean? is that uh, today, 2023, we have a lot of uh, technology. We can uh, sequence an entire human genome in a matter of hours. And we are overwhelmed by a lot of data about uh, the genetic variations that are within the, our genome. And as you know, is the variation that makes us all different from each other. 
and uh, is the variation that makes us prone to and susceptible to develop uh, cognition and traits uh, and language and things like that. But then uh, the problem is uh, when you have uh, something like, you know, four million uh, DNA differences between uh, you and I, right? So where and how can we select what uh, is important from what is just uh, a background noise? Because a lot of variation is just uh, randomly occurring. And it, it occurred to me that uh, if uh, we can inject some kind of evolutionary thinking uh, in the way that we can select uh, for gene variants or DNA variants that are affecting all of us, uh, then uh, my point us to what is relevant compared to what is just trending. True. The thing, you know, the other bit about this is that, you know, for most people, the mind and psychiatry are seen, are seen through a sort of Cartesian dualism as being different from the body and from the genes. So how do genes play into mental health? Huh. Okay, so first of all, uh, I am not denying uh, the importance of the environment, the importance of culture, the importance of nurture as compared to nature. But I do believe uh, that we are biological animals at the end. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then what happens is that uh, we are characterized by our biological background in interaction with whatever is a non-biological domain, which is uh, the culture, the way we live, the way we talk, the type of school that we attend, the diet that we are uh, following. Okay, But in the basic background, we are the product of our genes. Our genes are the basic biological mechanisms that are sculpting, they are controlling, they are managing the way we are born, the way we develop during childhood, and the way our brain works, which does not mean that we are our genes, but that means that the basic, the basic mechanisms are biologically based, right? Then yeah. it depends on what we make so the these mechanisms. So the thing with this is that, you know, mental... You know, the public health and medical systems are currently being strained by a rapidly rising incidence of psychiatric disorders. What can genetics tell us about this and see how and how does it play in to solving this issue? Well, genetics uh, is uh, going back to a lot of work that has been done in the past uh, 25 to 30 years so if uh, what I'm saying is true that means that uh, there are some genes uh, that might not work properly well and if they're not working properly well they are representing uh, the susceptible mechanisms by which we can develop some kind of psychiatric disorders like for example if you have uh, some genes that are controlling for a popular functioning of the serotonin system and either you have uh, an excess production or a defective production or maybe some receptors that are not working as it's, they are supposed to be then uh, you might be more prone to develop uh, depression or anxiety in case uh, you have been triggered by some kind of life events and this is exactly what we have done. So we have identified a lot of genes that are potentially susceptible risk factors uh, to develop uh, psychiatric disorders from schizophrenia to autism, Alzheimer's disorder, depression, whatever you name it. Regarding autism in particular, there has been a lot of panic around a around an epidemic of rising cases of autism leading to responses both serious and profoundly, well, otherwise, <laughs> from the general population? Well, first of all, uh, you have to remember that uh, autism, like a lot of other psychiatric disorders and psychiatric diagnoses, is a relatively recent diagnosis. Okay? And uh, 
yeah, just to remember, for example, that uh, the diagnosis of autism was created in uh, after Second World War. I mean, uh, late forties, early fifties, before we were labeling uh, autism like one of the many quote unquote mental retardation or academic uh, defect disorders or stuff like that. And uh, only relatively recently we have been able to identify as a, a different disorder with some kind of peculiarity and specificities. So the appar appar apparent epidemics is probably due to our ability to recognize more the disorder as an independent disorder right now. And then, uh, and then uh, there is also a real increase of cases of autism. And uh, we are trying to make sense of that uh, and try to understand why. Okay? So for example, there are more cases of autism in the countryside than in the cities, which is counterintuitive because you think that people subjected to an urban environment might be more predisposed to an autism rather than the countryside. But what we have discovered that, for example, by a specific investigation that we have performed, is that in the countryside you are using, uh, um, are using uh, chemical compounds uh, to control for weeds. Okay, and then uh, there are some of these chemical compounds that can act negatively or can have an impact on our neurodevelopmental um, stages when you are very young. And, and this is something that not necessarily is inducing a disorder, but if you have some kind of DNA variants that are predisposing to a disorder, then if you have uh, a chemical compound uh, that is used to control for um, bad weeds uh, in the, the uh, field production, and then you are subjected to this kind of thing. So it might happen that you might develop a kind of more severe or more or less severe disorder of autism. So this is a gene environment in action. Yeah. More with the with micropsychiatry, where do you see the potential going? I mean, there are already significant developments, like in other disorders, say cancer. There are drugs targeted to certain genes, and in psychiatry, there are already certain basic genetic tests which show the likelihood of certain antidepressants having side effects. Where do you see the future of molecular psychiatry, genetics, and the development of new treatments? Well, I see that uh, in uh, two different uh, dimensions, or maybe two different areas. Area number one, which is what we are actively and heavy working as of today, is uh, trying to still uh, learn a lot, uh, increase our knowledge about the specific molecular mechanisms that are at play in different uh, neuropsychiatric disorders. The more we know, the better we are in a kind of condition where we can uh, design new drugs uh, that are not gene therapy at all, but there are maybe specific molecules uh, that can uh, tag uh, the specific molecular defect that is at play in a given disorder. The more precise we are in our knowledge, the more precise we can be in designing drugs that can be as effective as possible and reduce a lot of side effects that are existing with the current drug treatment in psychiatry. As, as well, Dr. Machardi, we wanted to invite you on as well, at least in part, to congratulate you for and discuss your work with the team sequencing the first genome from that skeleton in Pompeii. The team was part of it, you know, you worked with a very international team, heavily based in Rome and Copenhagen. How'd you start working with them? Okay, so <clears throat> first of all, uh has been a kind of, you know, chance finding or a sheer luck or, or well, if you if you see 90% of the author there are Italian guys. And uh, given that my passion and my interest for the evolutionary component of the genome evolution, as I tried to explain before, I have been invited uh, in uh, several few years ago 
uh, as a visiting professor in University of Rome. And, uh, and I was specifically invited by the Department of Anthropology <laughs> just uh, to study the mechanism of genome evolution. And there I met a lot of other colleagues uh, with, we, with whom uh, we have uh, maintained contacts. And then uh, some of them are still working in Rome. Kind of other guys uh, have been uh, have moved to Copenhagen, which is one of the two world-known center for ancient uh, DNA analysis. And then, uh, uh, and then one of the colleagues that I met uh, and I developed a very nice kind of uh, scientific friendship with. Uh, was also an archaeologist and anthropologist uh, doing excavation in Pompeii. And uh, very recently, they have uh, reopened an ancient excavation that was originally found in 1920s or 1930s, but then was sealed because at the time they did not know how to handle that. And, uh, and in that kind of um, reopened excavation, they found two skeletons that were remarkably well preserved because instead of being burned and charred by the ashes of the Vesuvius, they were just sealed by the ashes in a kind of time capsule where no air was able to enter. And, uh, and we were guessing whether it would have been possible just to, you know, to find some DNA there. So we tried. And, and that was based on a kind of a silly joke. And the silly joke is that uh, the two skeletons have been found uh, in the house of the locksmith, which in Italian is said Casa del Fabbro. And the last name of one of the archaeologists that was making excavation was Fabri, plural of Fabbro, right? So he was joking and said, hey guys, can you just uh, help me just in sequencing my long distant cousin? I know nothing about it. And based on this kind of a silly joke, then we said, why not? Okay, But we never thought that we would have been uh, lucky enough uh, to, uh, to sequence a genome extracted, wh whose DNA has been extracted from bones in, in Pompeii, because we thought that everything would have been impossible to sequence because it would have been burned. But in this case, uh, as I said, uh, the, the, the DNA was preserved uh, for for some kind of unusual reasons. And what we have obtained is <clears throat> the sequence of one individual, which is remarkably well-preserved and is in similar in quality to a modern human DNA. So we got a lot of information from this guy. That's interesting. That is absolutely fascinating. How? Yeah, you know, how would you say DNA development has was this, you know, only possible due to recent improvements in DNA technology, and how has that technology improved? Yeah, the technology for studying ancient DNA has done remarkable and super speedy <laughs> improvement in the last, uh, let's say, twenty years, uh, and mostly. We have seen an acceleration in new methods, new techniques uh, since 2010. And 2010 is a pivotal year because it is the year when the first uh, whole genome of a Neanderthal uh, hominid was published. Since then, uh, we have uh, learned how to work uh, in a kind of a very um, protecting way with uh, ancient DNA to avoid contamination with modern DNA. We have improved uh, the biochemical techniques uh, to prepare DNA libraries. So we can now get uh, a lot of information from virtual tiny, tiny, tiny fragments of DNA and bones. And uh, the new technology, which has nothing to do necessarily with paleogenetics, but has do to do with uh, genetic technologies in general, which is uh, the next generation sequencing, which has accelerated the production and the quantity of genetic information that you can get uh, from DNA has also improved. So if you put all together good samples, 
careful handling of ancient DNAs, new refined biochemical method to prepare libraries that are specifically uh, DNA libraries. DNA libraries are the basic uh, uh, bricks by which you can get uh, genetic information that are specifically tailored to ancient DNA and the new machines uh, that are faster, quicker, and less expensive, then you can get a lot. So that, and of course, the thing with paleogenetics that a lot of that every sample is in a way unique in that for instance Pompeii famously was destroyed by a thousand Celsius pyroclastic flow of ash which buried the entire city and you know there must have been damage from that and you know, as I said there are and there are some cases of extracting mammoth DNA frozen in ice so how do they work around the different sorts of damage and you know, processing the DNA? Well, here to begin with, uh, the best DNA possible, because uh, if the DNA is really too much damage, there is nothing that you can do. So the best ancient DNAs are coming from uh, the upper northern hemisphere, Greenland or northern Siberia, where, where you, due to the condition there that has been maintained over the last uh, 100, 200, 300,000 years, uh, it is as if uh, whoever died there, the ancient uh, Denisovan, uh, the ancient uh, Neanderthals, uh, or the ancient Mammoths uh, have been preserved uh, in a gigantic freezer for the last 300,000 years uh, without the temperature variation. So ideal condition to still find out uh, ancient DNAs. On the contrary, you cannot almost find ancient DNAs uh, in African sample, North African sample, or even Southern European sample because the climate is way much different, uh, much hotter, and the DNA gets damaged uh, way much faster. In Pompeii, usually People that try to extract DNA before we did our job had to deal with uh, the 1,000 degrees pyroclast ashes, as you said, and whatever they've been able to extract were, if any, DNA was left, just tiny fragments. We have been lucky in the sense that we found skeletons that have not been burned, but they've been just covered by ashes uh, in an inside environment. So the entire house was covered by ashes. Ashes were not necessarily touching the body immediately. So they have not been burned. They just got asphyxiated by lack of air. And this lack of air lasted for 2000 years. So it was another way of preserving the DNA from any outside world contamination or uh, destruction. Speaking of contamination, how exactly would you prevent outside DNA from getting in there, especially during the process of excavation, extraction, transport? Okay, you should look uh, at some pictures of uh, archaeologists today. Archaeologists today when they are digging, uh, for for example, uh, ancient remains of from Neanderthals uh, in uh, southern France or, 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 or Spain case, uh, are just uh, doing their excavation uh, when they are wearing suits, like uh, if you are going to space. So, in other words, they are... <coughs> They are wearing specific clothes just to, to avoid uh, having any part of their body uh, on the air and avoid uh, any kind of scrapping of the skin or, you know, sneezing on the ground. So they, they are trying to work in a kind of uh, um, sealed environment and uh, as much as contaminant-free environment, I will not say neutral environment because probably it's not possible. 
and uh, any kind of specimen that is recovered is just immediately put in a specific uh, plastic bag to avoid further contamination you bring them to the lab in the lab there are some uh, areas that are um, um, that are protected like if you're doing a, a virus uh, analysis so the air cannot get into that kind of uh, uh, part of the lab can only get out and then uh, there are ultraviolet lights preventing any further contamination and you are still working there only if you are dressing uh, anti-contamination suits so it's kind of uh, i don't know hazmat hazmat suits and all that yeah yeah the Another thing that I noticed that you didn't only recover human DNA from this sample. You found, I believe, in the verte in the vertebral column of this individual a quite a bit of a bit of tuberculosis DNA. How was that? And right. I mean, when we discovered the skeleton and we have done a medical examination of the skeleton, we found out that uh, the bones showed the signs of tuberculosis. What is technically called the POTS disease, tuberculosis of the bones. So, and given that uh, we realize that we have an excellent DNA in terms of quality, then uh, we guessed whether we would have been able not only to sequence the human DNA of the guy, which we did, but if we would have been lucky enough to find out also the, the, gene, the, the DNA of the mycobacterium. So we did a second pass on the DNA that we had extracted from the bone of the guy, because if he, the guy really got tuberculosis, then the, the, the DNA of the mycobacterium should have circulated everywhere. And although maybe in a small amount, should have also gone into the bone of the guy, which is exactly what we did. And we found out that from the DNA that we extracted from the bones, we had been able also to recover uh, fragments uh, almost the entire genome of the mycobacterium that was responsible for giving this guy the tuberculosis so essentially we have been able to sequence uh, the genome of the mycobacterium tuberculosis which is 2000 years old and to our knowledge this is the oldest uh, mycobacterium genome sequence done and that's fascinating especially given how much of ancient history is, like, is filled with disastrous plagues and such, and well, modern history too. <coughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So then that results. In, so yeah, how does this work? You know, what can it tell us in our modern day to historians and to physicians? You mean for the mycobacterium, for yeah. example? Okay, so that kind of finding was very interesting because. Uh, one of the first things that we have done is that we compare the sequence uh, of a 2,000 years old mycobacterium which, with uh, the sequence of uh, present-day mycobacterium, right? And we have observed that uh, there has been a very little, little variation. So essentially that tells us that mycobacterium is very resistant and uh, <clears throat> has a very low evolutionary rate which might inform uh, the way new drugs can be designed to treat mycobacterium because uh, because if the mycobacterium is not if the genome of the mycobacterium is not evolving very fast that means that you can design drugs that are affecting specific part of the genome and probably be more effective than the present day drugs that is completely different for example with uh, the paleogenetic information that we have against uh, the disease uh, of the black death or the plague whose first appearance happened in, uh, well, I mean, the first known appearance happened in 4th century AD, Justinian, Justinian plague. But then uh, we have recovered even the, well, not we, but then other colleagues have recovered the sequence of the plague uh, pathogen from uh, uh, 1st century AD skeletons. But in that case, uh, the plaque pathogen is very, very different from the current uh, sequence. And then means that probably finding a, a treatment for the plaque, uh, hopefully 
just don't need it <laughs> as much as of today, but might be slightly more difficult because of this kind of rapid variation of the pathogen. Sure. So, as well, the article includes a fairly in-depth discussion regarding the genetic origin and ethnic background of the individual whose genome you're able to sequence. What has the interplay of genomics and archaeology been able to tell us about the makeup of ancient societies like the Roman Empire, which was famously diverse, unlike what some people would like to state about it? Okay, that is a very interesting part because uh, um, I think that uh, archaeology and genetics and paleogenetics uh, are really um, learning and uh, can produce more interesting data by working together. We already knew that the Roman Empire was as diverse as possible, was the largest empire at the time, included something like uh, one quarter to let's say one quarter of the living population at the time and by by doing a paleogenetic investigation uh, we we can know we we can infer from where father and mother and all the ancestors of uh, people that were living at the time were coming from we know how the mix-up of the population was like and uh, comparing uh, the sequence uh, of this kind of Pompeian individual with the other data that are available for the Roman Empire, which is not much as yet, we learned that this guy was a typical, typical Roman of that kind of period of time whose mother was coming from Sardinia, whose father was coming, or father or father ancestors were coming from the Middle East. And that was a, a typical trajectory for a lot of other Roman people of the time, showing and supporting the idea that the Roman Empire was as cosmopolitan as possible and uh, that the Roman population, even existing in Italy, had different routes all across the Mediterranean area. Yeah, this is, this folks, you know, this genetic history and democracy is utterly fascinating, especially, you know, the, especially working on the ancient Mediterranean. You know, are you... A lot of people are worried, and the in this field of ancient demography is seen as fairly controversial as genetics as a whole, due to the worries about you know nationalism and various nefarious purposes of research on genetic differences in populations. What's your opinion on the role science has to play in combating prejudices while promoting health? Well, one of the other things that you learn when you are doing genetics analysis of even different individuals from different parts of the world is that uh, there are differences, but these differences are just marginal differences, and there is nothing like uh, any signature for a race. There is, uh, there are no race. We are all belonging to the same uh, large families, uh, and everybody is expressing. Uh, one character in a slightly different way, as uh, you and I are expressing. You are, you have much more air than me, which does not mean that you are a different race, the airy race, and uh, <clears throat> and the color of our skin can be slightly different. But this is mostly due to where you were uh, um, brought to live, because. Uh, you are naturally, among all the different possibilities that are existing in humans, I, if you are living in a kind of an area where the, the sun is more heating than uh, in other parts of the world, then, uh, then uh, the kind of an environmental component uh, is uh, selecting uh, you and your kids and your distant uh, relatives, uh, ancestors or descendants uh, to develop more or to be selected for a higher level of expression of melatonin because it's protecting your skin. But that does not mean that you are a different race from other individuals that have a different color. 
And in, in the case of the Roman, in the case of the Roman Empire, the variety of the people and the origin of the people and the mix-up was unbelievable. As much as is unbelievable the variety of the mix-up of genetics component in the current Mediterranean area. And uh, that has nothing to do with race. This is just, you know, fluctuation of frequencies of different genes. But we are all equal. True, there was... I mean, true, the historical record even states that on one of the campaigns, uh, one of the campaigns of the Severan Emperors into Britain, there was an Ethiopian soldier who, well, was explicitly stated to be what we would nowadays call black fighting for the legions in Britain. But then, you know, of course, we now have a lot of worries about genetics as a whole mediated by, by our culture and fears, fear-mongering about designer babies and films like Gattaca, as well as our own sordid history, both as a society and, unfortunately, as a medical profession regarding eugenics, that complicate the field of genetics. What would you say to people worried about this sort of study and about the virtue of studying genetic and the value of studying genetics in the modern day? Well, uh, first of all, I can say that the people are right to be worried uh, because, uh, because there are some kind of uh, distorted vision of science by which then is mostly used in terms of uh, economic advantages of some people where there are guys, individuals, but there are even companies that are trying to um, claim that they can design uh, the perfect guy or the perfect girl, which uh, is uh, a kind of Faustian dream that has been present in literature for hundreds of years but is not a feasible thing in the sense that there is not the perfect guy. I mean, uh, there are just uh, the different type of combinations and, uh, and then uh, there are, uh, uh, I, I don't know, and nobody knows how you can, uh, assuming that is possible, and uh, to my knowledge uh, is not possible, <laughs> but assuming that you can select uh, the best trait uh, from the genome, right? So how can you be sure that when you select the best trait and then you mix up uh, this kind of a best trait with uh, this kind of a genetic engineering uh, that seems so cool today, like CRISPR, you, you really generate uh, the best individual? Uh, that's not possible because we don't know what the best means, right? Number one. And number two, because uh, the genome is way too much more complicated than we think it is, and uh, there are parts of the genome that we still do not know, and there are other parts of the genome that we cannot even control and we will never be able to control because uh, they are highly modifiable part of the genome that are characterizing us, and they are not amenable to any kind of treatment. One thing is uh, if you discover that uh, gene A in uh, the particular pathological variant uh, A1 is uh, giving you a disorder. Okay, in that case, uh, you can try to do your best with current genetic uh, engineering uh, and genetic method uh, to correct for the defect, right? But one thing is correct for a known defect uh, on which we, we have a lot of knowledge about. Uh, another one is introducing uh, variants of genes for which we know nothing. That probably will lead to a disaster not to the best individual. And of course, there's also that gray area like that Chinese scientist, He Jiankui, who went behind the back of the scientific community to genetically modify those two girls. Right, he has done this kind of way in a, probably the best intention, right? She want, he wanted to protect the girls by being infected by a virus. So he modified one gene. But the problem is that uh, we know today that uh, there is not a linear relationship, one gene, one function, one protein, okay? So one gene can do multiple, can have multiple effects, can have multiple consequences. So 
Nobody knows, at least of which this kind of a Chinese colleague, uh, what he has done to these two girls. Maybe he has protected the two girls by being infected, uh, but he might have also have affected the two girls in some kind of behavioral component that we don't know yet, or we know nothing about, because uh, this kind of things is never existed before. So uh, this is one of the reasons why there are a lot of concerns about uh, doing any kind of uh, genetic engineering, which is technically possible, but is uh, ethically questionable. And then, of course, there's popular genetics like 23andMe, which have their own set of comedies and consequence. What do you think of the technology and the, well, effects of this sort of you know, rapid universal genetic testing that I can go for $100 and get my genome sequence? Well, there are some areas uh, where we have, uh, and everybody has, kind of uh, uh, good knowledge, okay? So 23andMe was originally built uh, with uh, some very simple idea, which was based uh, on accumulated knowledge over the past 20 years, uh, which is, uh, if I have your DNA and I see the different allelic frequency for assignments out of senior two genes, I can make my best educated guess of what is your um, population origin. If you are a, a, a Northern European, Caucasian, a Southern European, Italian, or the likes. And this has been studied a lot because that has been one of the great areas of genetics and demographic genetics where a lot of effort has been invested since the time of pioneering work in late 70s, early 80s of the last century. So let's say that we have 50 years of accumulated knowledge, right? So we don't know everything, but we know enough, just at least to get that kind of information. What I think that is really deceptive is that uh, uh, companies like 23andMe are going far beyond that and are trying to tell you if you are at risk of developing uh, type 2 diabetes or Alzheimer or, you know, anxiety disorder or uh, if you have a propension to develop uh, cancer type A or type B. And then that would be, if that would have been possible, it would be a fantastic achievement. Problem is, uh, we are still on a kind of a learning curve for all these kind of things. Uh, and claiming that you have the knowledge uh, to tell one person about the risk of developing a cancer when in reality, you can just guess with a very low probability what will happen to you in the next 20 years. That is a little bit too much. Also, because whatever happens to you in the next 20 years is not only based on genes, it's based on your lifestyle, diet, uh, how you live, the environment, your family, and a lot of other kind of non-genetic reasons why you will be what you will be 20 years from now. Thank you so much. And now for a few additional questions. The thing is, anthropology and history tend to be placed in one box of the humanities. You know, psychiatry is both medicine and, you know, social science in that it deals with the mind. And genetics is seen as one of the harder fields of hard science. What brought you to, you know, blend these three things together? And what's your view on the relationship between the different forms of knowledge that we have? Uh, different and difficult question. I don't know exactly how to answer about that. I do personally believe that uh, knowledge has uh, different roots. And when it comes uh, to deal with the knowledge about uh, us, the human beings or about uh, other quote-unquote animals um, like, uh, I don't know, gorillas or chips, but mostly us, then we are a combination of different uh, roots. So we are a combination of uh, biology and uh, non-biological events. And... uh, the biology and the culture are informing each other 
to make who we are and to constant move toward another level of evolution. In other words, the way you eat, the way you think, the school you attend are not biological mechanisms, but have an impact on your biology. Okay, and your biology is modified by your life events and what you can transmit to your progeny one day will be a combination of your biology and whatever the life event that have changed your biology. Okay, what is called uh, epigenetics, so something that is not so hard like the DNA, but something that is modifying the DNA and can be transmitted from one generation to the other. And you know, another note, what what led you to the you know, what led you to this career path? Usually for medicine it's assumed that the career options are inpatient, outpatient, research, and maybe administration of other physicians. You know, not becoming a visiting professor of anthropology of all things. You know, what you know, how did curiosity you know, what led you down these paths and what advice do you have for people starting for future phys physicians and early career physicians with, you know, broad interests? Well, my, my suggestion is uh, a very simple, follow your curiosity. At some point uh, you will have uh, a lot of kind of things to do. Medicine uh, is fascinating, uh, but it's difficult, uh, requires a lot of uh, constant learning. Uh, requires some kind of uh, humility in dealing with uh, our patients and uh, I remember I, I have done a lot of clinical work also <clears throat> but then uh, follow follow what makes you happy in satisfying your curiosity not don't, don't try necessarily to uh, get as much money as possible it's not it's not bad per se but then uh, what makes you alive and what, what makes you a great uh, doctor at some point, uh, even for your patient, uh, patients, uh, is uh, if, if, you, if you have some kind of creativity, if you have some kind of uh, unusual way of approaching things. Because otherwise you will try to apply a kind of uh, a textbook medicine, which will not recognize the uniqueness of our patients. In my particular case, uh, my my curiosity was driven uh, to pursue a particular research perspective. And my, my research uh, was, was driven by my childhood curiosity on anthropology and evolution and why we are now so different from what we had been 100,000 years ago. There are other questions uh, that are as good as this one uh, or even better than that one and uh, can lead you to you know develop a maybe new interface treatment uh, with technologies uh, and uh, the biology which were unthinkable uh, 20 years ago so i've just seen uh, uh, a news on tv by which people that were paralyzed because they their uh, medulla oblongata was uh, cut by an accident they can now walk thanks to a cheap implant in their uh, remaining part of the central nervous system which will transfer the information to the, the legs bypassing the lesion how that possible i mean I, I don't know but you know i'm sure that these guys were not typical mds right <laughs> because yeah. you have to be creative to think about the out of the box so then this comes down to what's your opinion what's your what's your philosophy around you know knowledge around knowledge and how these sorts of things work because our society is growing more and more towards the idea of pressing everyone to very hyper specialized knowledge as opposed to the idea of the rena as opposed to the earlier idea of the renaissance man that's true um I think that uh, that is needed because every single field and subfield uh, is becoming more and more complicated. But at the same time, uh, my suggestion or my personal idiosyncratic idea 
is that uh, at the maximum possible extent you should not lose uh, the idea that whatever field you are in uh, you are part of a greater uh, um, box or greater world right it's impossible to have the same type of uh, extended uh, universal knowledge uh, as was uh, the mythical idea of the renaissance man but you 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 should maintain uh, to the best of your abilities uh, an extended knowledge maybe something that you cannot necessarily do by yourself everything but you know why not uh, having this kind of talk that you as we are having why not talking with other colleagues and friends that are doing different things in the world i mean your future world as a future doctors is not only talking with other doctors right it's talking with other people that you can open your mind to unexpected avenues true and if you could go back in time start of your career what advice would you give yourself Try to become a dentist and get more money. Uh, okay, that is a joke, but you know, I don't know. I think that honestly, I am very happy of what I have been achieved over the course of the last 40 years of my uh, career. And uh, I have been privileged and lucky enough to have the possibility to follow my curiosity. So, at the beginning has been difficult because there was no structured field as much as there is not much even today but i will not probably do anything different from what i've done and i will give myself the same suggestion as my mother and father did try to you know be faithful to yourself to your curiosity to your instinct and try to follow them because at the end of the day you have to live with yourself. I mean, you have to be happy for what you have been able to achieve, which is not only depending on you, but it's depending on the type of life uh, and the other people that you have met in your life. And uh, if you have some motivation to keep going, uh, even in the darkest hours, then you can keep going. If your motivation are too, uh, or, uh, too much, not so personal, then you might lack motivation to keep going. So at the end of the day, whatever is uh, your driving force, curiosity, interest, uh, novelty seeking, <laughs> well, try to follow them. You will never be disappointed. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Dr. Machetti. It's really been fascinating. Thanks to you, Peter, and thanks to the patient of the guys that have listened to us, and thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or episode suggestions, please email us at oumpodcast at cusm.org. That's oumpodcast at cusm.org. Thanks.